Acts chapter 18, if you guys have your Bibles. We are trekking through the book of Acts. It's been a phenomenal study. Really have enjoyed it. So we're going to be in Acts 18, the first half. Paul is in Corinth. While you're going there, you know, uh, ministry can be really discouraging sometimes. <laughs> and I, and I, when I say that, please don't, please don't think I'm only talking about vocational ministry. I just mean anyone in here who's ever ministered to somebody. Uh, any of you have kids? Okay. Anybody? Kids? Okay. Uh, that's ministry. Uh, anyone have family members that, that maybe have brokenness or things in their life that you've tried to love or lead or help? That's ministry. Um, anyone who, who has tried to do anything in life that helps others, okay, in a way that is, is kingdom-minded or kingdom-focused, this is ministry. And it can get really, really hard. You know, I remember uh, when I first started, I uh, first got saved, and I knew that God was calling me into ministry. And I had this idea about ministry that, you know, uh, it was just going to be life change all the time. And I just, like, was addicted to this idea of life change. I want to see people's lives change. You know, nobody joins uh, the pastor. Nobody becomes a pastor because they don't want to see lives changed. <laughs> you know, you become a pastor because you want to see lives change. So, so I, I got into ministry, and I'm just thinking lives are going to change, you know. And, and they do, but it's really messy. <laughs> and it takes a really long time. And sometimes it's really discouraging. I remember the first time, uh, you know, as, a, as like a 17, 18-year-old, and I, I was doing this juvenile hall ministry to these at-risk youth that were kind of locked up. Some of them um, had been in there for a long time. Some of them had been there just for the night for partying or whatever. And we're ministering to these kids, and I come in, and they're in their sweatpants and their Velcro shoes, and they're really broken, and, and the tears are flowing. And I'm just thinking, this is amazing, you know, and I'm praying for them, and they're crying, and they're giving their heart over to the Lord, and, and it was just truly an amazing thing. And I thought, well, man, it doesn't get any better than that. And then about a week later, one of the kids that had just been so emotional and so, you know, so um, open to the gospel, I saw him as I was driving through town with his friends. He'd gotten out of juvenile hall, and he was walking down the street. And I yelled out to him, hey, what's up, Jose? And he looks at me, completely ignores me. <laughs> Would never talk to me again after that. And that was one of the first times I just remember thinking, wow, that's really discouraging. <laughs> You know, I mean, I just poured into this kid. I thought that this was like this moment of life change. I'm not saying it wasn't real. I'm not saying there wasn't reality to it. Um, but, but I realized, wow, okay, so 95% give, 5% potentially return. I mean, you, you give out and you give out. Any of you that have children understand that. You pour out and you pour out and you pour out and you teach them manners and you teach them manners and you teach them the right way and then they grow up and they do whatever they want and you go, Really? It's discouraging. I mean, you know, it's really, it can be discouraging. Why is it so hard? Well, it's hard for a few reasons. First of all, people are way worse than you think they are, <laughs> right? I mean, I tend to be kind of idealistic about people. I just tend to think that they're, they're all really good, and, um, and that's, not, that's not always true. Um, people change way slower than you think. Isn't that true? It takes a lot longer to change. Relationship is way messier than you could possibly imagine, Helping people, and this one's really true, helping people costs you way more than most of us are actually willing to give. Helping people really, it really costs. All of us want that story where we just came into someone's life and we said a couple words and it was so profound, they changed their whole life and everything was better. Let me know when they wake up from that dream, okay? Change takes time. Helping people takes time. Ministry takes time. The problems are always more complex than you thought they were. The baggage and the trauma and the reasons why people do irrational things are always much deeper than you possibly could have imagined. 
We have a limited scope. We never really know if what we're doing is the right thing. Family devotions, not family devotions. You know, I mean, all of these questions, are like, I don't know if the, the way I'm investing myself is the right way to invest myself. It's just hard. And, and, and let's not forget the fact that there's a real enemy who doesn't really want life change, <laughs> doesn't want kingdom advancement, doesn't want people to be set free from the bondage of sin. He doesn't want people to deal with the trauma in their past and move forward believing the gospel, becoming healthy, functioning spiritual beings. He doesn't like that. He doesn't want that. He's opposed to that. In our text, you know, we're kind, of, we're kind of midway down the field here. Paul's been doing ministry for a while. He's on his second missionary journey. The gospel's been advancing. And, you know, as you guys know, uh, you start strong. Whenever, whenever you take on something, you know, start strong. And then you get in the middle and you start feeling a little weary. <laughs> you start thinking, am I going to get through this? Paul's kind of at the midway point here in his missionary journey. And don't think missionary journey like a two-week two trip, okay? We're talking years. He's, he's been on this second journey for, for quite a while at this point, um, and he's feeling a little discouraged. He's coming from discouraging things. If you remember, he was uh, beat up and imprisoned in Philippi, okay? Uh, he literally got the snot kicked out of him, got thrown in prison at night, uh, and was, it was just a brutal thing. It was a really brutal thing. Um, and don't think that Paul liked that. He wasn't some kind of super Christian, superhuman. You think he liked getting beat up? You think that was fun for him? <laughs> no, he didn't like it. Uh, he got beat up in Philippi, and then he, he goes to Thessalonica directly after that, and he gets chased out of Thessalonica. He almost had another chance, he almost had another run-in where he was going to get beat up again. He gets to Berea, and the Jews from Thessalonica follow him and mock him and chase him out of Thessalonica. And then he goes to Athens, and he basically gets mocked, called a babbler, seed picker, someone who pecks at the truth. They think, you know, they, they basically laugh at him. And of course, there's fruit all along the way. But Paul's discouraged. He's coming from discouraging events. He says, particularly in 1 Corinthians 2.3, about this moment in his missionary journey, uh, he says, particularly, I was with you, Corinthians, in weakness and fear and much trembling. We don't like to think of our spiritual heroes that way. You know, I mean, he's the Apostle Paul. Surely he was always excited. But that's not how he portrays himself in this particular moment. When he gives commentary later about how he's feeling, he says, I'm discouraged. I was discouraged. I was weak. I was trembling. I came to you frail. I came to you frail. I, I like leading out of a position of confidence. I mean, don't you? <laughs> like, don't we like leading out of this confidence? Like, I know where we're going. Follow me. I will fix this. Okay? But in reality, that's not always how leadership works. A lot of times, leadership is, I don't really know, but I I'm the guy that gets paid to guess. <laughs> so follow me, okay? Uh, you're having great confidence in me as your leader right now as I'm saying that. Uh, I don't know what I'm doing, and I don't have it all together. I'm intensely weak. Come follow me, you know? This is the reality of most leadership. Um, so this is how Paul's feeling, okay? He's feeling, he's coming from discouragement. He's discouraged, and he's about to come into more discouragement, as we'll see in our text, because the Jews are going to continue to reject and deny the gospel that he's bringing to them. So here's what we're doing this morning. I want to try to encourage us as ministers this morning. But the way that I'm going to do that is instead of giving you five reasons or five ways to not be discouraged, I'm going to give you five ways to be discouraged. <laughs> okay? So here's five ways to let discouragement defeat your ministry. Okay? So if you would like to burn out um, and be defeated in ministry, write these down. And you, I'm giving you the code to unlocking that. 
Now, here's the reality. Even though Paul was discouraged, he writes later to to the Corinthians in chapter 3, verse 10 through 17, he says that he laid a good foundation for the Corinthian church, even though they were completely dysfunctional and twisted and messed up and all kinds of things as we see in the letter. uh, He still said, I laid a good foundation, and that foundation was Christ. Okay, so even in spite of his discouragement, he he still laid a good foundation, and we need to look at what that foundation was, and that's uh, what I love about this passage. It's going to see how the birth of the Corinthian church happened, even in the midst of Paul's intense discouragement. So here we go, five ways to let your discouragement defeat your ministry. Number one, focus on the brokenness of the place God has you. Don't see its redemptive potential. Focus on the brokenness of the place God has you. Don't see its redemptive potential. And by place, I don't just mean geographically, although I certainly do mean that. I mean the place God has you. The pot that God has you planted in. Okay? If you want to, if you want to be discouraged, if you want to let discouragement defeat you, just, just focus on how bad where God has you is. Don't see any redemptive potential. Um, based on the facts, most fundamental Christians would see Paul going to Corinth and think, why would he go there? Why would he go to Corinth? A um, little bit of detail about the, the, the city of Corinth. Okay, it's in Greece, southern Greece. Uh, Corinth was the largest city in Greece at a population of about 750,000 people. Okay, so this is a large city. It, it, it really was a massive city. It was mostly built within the last 100 years of Paul being there, so it was very new, it's very modern. Um, most of the narrative of chapters 17 through 20 focus on Corinth, Ephesus, and Athens. Um, so having said that, Tim Keller says this about those three cities. kind of helps us understand how to think about them. He says, Athens was like Boston, uh, an intellectual center. Okay, if you remember, we talked about Athens last week, the, the place of ideas, the place of philosophy, uh, the place of sort of the school, the college, um, the university. So that's um, Athens. But then Corinth, which is just to the right, just to the, uh, to the, right, just to the east of uh, Athens, Corinth was like New York City. It was a commercial center. Uh, and then Ephesus was like Los Angeles. It was a popular culture and occult center. So Corinth is kind of defined as a commercial place. It's on the coast. It's got a port. So there's lots of goods coming in and coming out. It was really a bustling place. And because it was a bustling place and because it was a coastal place, as you can imagine, there was a ton of immorality. It was extremely dark. It was really the place where rampant sexual immorality and idolatry just loved in, to live and just sort of breed there. Uh, in fact, the Greek verb translated to live like a Corinthian, to be Corinthianized, is to become immoral. There, there was literally, they, they had taken the word Corinthian and turned it into a verb in that day. And they were trying to refer to someone that was immoral. That's how bad it was. There was, uh, the legend says at least, that there was this thing called the Acrocorinth, which was a large sort of flat mountain right behind um, Right behind Corinth, you can see it in the pictures of Corinth today in Greece. And apparently there was a, a, a temple on the top. And at night, thousands of temple prostitutes would come down and, and go about their business all throughout the town. Um, some people think that was a legend, but, but regardless, that was the reality of the time. This was a dark place. This was an immoral place. It's not the place that you would think Paul would want to come, especially when you're feeling discouraged. Can you just go somewhere easy? You know, like can you go to the, under the Bible Belt or something? Like you're going right into the heart of San Francisco? Uh, there's a guy in the X19 network who uh, is a pastor in San Francisco. Uh, I kid you not, he literally had his house blown up with a bomb. 
okay? Like, I'm not even kidding you. Like, he preaches the gospel in San Francisco. There's so much hatred towards him that they literally blew his house up. Uh, fortunately, he wasn't home. Uh, but that's the kind of animosity we're talking about. Like, Paul, you're discouraged. Why are you going here? Like, why here? Of all the places, this is a dark place. John Stott, he says, it seems to have been Paul's deliberate policy to move purposely from one strategic center to the next. So Paul is, um, he's smart, and he's thinking, okay, I'm going to build beachheads in these larger cities in order to create ministry sending places to reach the surrounding areas. So he was very intentional in going to Corinth, and he didn't see it as a problem. He saw it as an opportunity. He didn't see the, the fact that there was a, um, a stronghold, that the enemy had a stronghold as a problem. He saw, this is great. This is exactly where I need to be. This is exactly where the gospel can, can penetrate most powerfully. So, so uh, my point is, where does God have you right now? And are you looking at the frustrations with that? Or are you looking at the potential? Maybe you have a child who doesn't want anything to do with Jesus, and you're just frustrated with that. Maybe you're at a job that seems completely pagan and immoral. Maybe you're frustrated with the, the culture of our society, the fact that there's a pot shop, you know, coming up every two blocks or, or whatever. Maybe you see the homelessness or maybe you see um, just sort of the, 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 the teen homelessness in our city and you're just thinking, this is terrible. This is terrible. Um, see that as an opportunity. This is exactly where God wants us. The more darkness, the more opportunity there is for the gospel to light it up, okay? So, so the first way, if you, if you want to, avoid, um, or I'm sorry, if you want to burn out, if you want to be discouraged, just focus on the brokenness of the place that God has you. Number two, second way is to remove the co from the Great Commission. Remove the co from the Great Commission. Jesus' vision for the New Testament, uh, Jesus' vision for the new humanity, he which, of which, of course, is the new Adam, and we are the new humanity, his vision was community. Um, why did he pick 12 disciples? Why didn't he just pick one? Pick 12, because his vision was that his work would be accomplished by a team. That's always been God's vision. Uh, that's why he created not um, a person, Abraham, but he called Abraham to have kids, and then he formed a nation, a people group out of that. God's vision has always been a group of people. That's why in Revelation, at the end, what do we see? We see a city with lots of people. So this idea of koinonia is the Greek term. It's fellowship, partnership, commonality. Um, so Jesus, when he said, uh, who are my brothers and who are my sisters? His point in that was particularly to say that those who obey me, those who are now in the new kingdom, that's my new family. Now I, I say that to say that the, re, the, re, the way that we are designed to do ministry is together. And a lot of Christians don't get this. This, is, this seems like it would be obvious. A lot of Christians don't get this. They think, I don't need to be in the church to do ministry. Oh, that's, that's true. Okay. But if you want to burn out, if you want uh, to be discouraged and ultimately have your ministry destroyed, then just do it by yourself. Just do it by yourself. I, th this week at the men's retreat, uh, I was trying to build a fire, and uh, there was like kindling, and then there was these massive logs. <laughs> So I'd start the kindling, and it would be looking like it was really good and nice fire, and I'd throw a couple big logs in there, and then I'd go do something else for 10 minutes, and I'd come back, and it was out. I'm like, this is so frustrating. And I did it again, and I put the kindling, and I got it going. I put the big logs, and I left and come back, and it was out again. And I'm like, wow, like, you know, come on, Sam, seriously. And I realized, well, there's not, there's not enough wood to keep the thing going. I, the, the, the large logs are too big. We need um, enough small logs to keep it going. And this is how, if you ever built a fire, this is how fire works, right? You need enough logs that are the right size to get enough fire going to where there's coals. And once there's coals, then the big logs will burn, 
right? So Paul comes into this new place, and he's completely alone. His team, he sent them back to Thessalonica to check on them and make sure they were doing okay. He comes in discouraged, downtrodden, into this terrible, immoral place called Corinth. He's completely alone, um, and Jesus, fortunately, doesn't leave him that way. So look at the text, and we'll get in here at verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens, went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, and a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife, Priscilla. So we have Aquila and Priscilla. You guys have probably heard of these guys before. They come up quite a bit through the New Testament. Uh, they, were, they really became deep friends of the Apostle Paul's. Because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for they were tent makers by trade. Okay, so God's providing for Paul here. He doesn't want him to be alone. He doesn't want him to minister alone. So he brings some believers, Aquila and Priscilla, um, who were tent makers, into relationship uh, with the Apostle Paul. Now, we learn some things about these two here. First of all, uh, they were exiled from Rome. Do you see that? They were exiled from Rome. Uh, Now, we know from history that the Jews were kicked out of Rome around this time because of some kind of an uprising that was supposedly led by someone named Crestus. Now, that was written hundreds of years later, and what the, most, most scholars agree that most likely some historian misheard the name, and in fact, these were actually Christians in Rome that had caused some kind of an uprising, and, and, and in some way had offended the government, and because of that, all of the Jews were exiled from the city of Rome, okay? Kind of fascinating. And what that tells us is that Aquila and Priscilla were probably Christians, So they weren't necessarily converts of Paul. They were already believers, and God brought them into the ministry of the Apostle Paul to support and help the work that he did. And they were tent makers. They made tents out of leather. Okay, we're we're at least assuming that's how you translate that, tent makers. It could have been any kind of leather work. But regardless, as Paul is feeling discouraged and as he's feeling alone, God brings these co-laborers in to to do tent work with him. Now, Paul was trained as a a rabbi. He was trained as a Pharisee. So therefore, uh, they always had to have a side hustle. Okay, got to have a side hustle because you weren't really necessarily to be paid for your teachings um, in that line of work. So Paul was trained to be a tent maker, just like Jesus was trained to be a carpenter, right? They had a second job. So he has this common trade with these guys. They become friends. And as they're making tents, what are they doing? They're fellowshipping. They're talking about the risen Christ. They're celebrating the gospel, encouraging one another. And Paul drew deep life from his friendship with these. You see it in the way that he talks about them later in the New Testament. He was very encouraged by this this couple, Aquila and Priscilla. So the Lord was faithful to bring community around. And we hear a lot more about them later in the New Testament. They pop up in Ephesus. They eventually move back to Rome. Paul greets them in some of his other letters. But my point is this, that God knows without others stoking our passions, we burn out. Okay? Back to the fire. You take a coal and you put it over by itself, it goes out. You keep them together, the heat works together. So that's why we do church, okay? Uh, all the organization, all the time, all the, all the planning, uh, we don't just do that because it's fun, okay? We come together because we need each other. And we don't need each other just to play church and say, okay, like, uh, like you play house, okay, we need a pastor, we need a worship leader, and we need a kids person. We, we, we don't come together to play church, we come together because we're on mission, because we're trying to advance the kingdom. And if we're going to advance the kingdom, we need each other to do that. We need to, to stoke each other's fire. Um, Jesus knew that. He didn't leave Paul alone. Okay? Uh, that's why Jesus was alone in the temptation. He was alone in the temptation because he had to show that he could do it without any help. He was at his most vulnerable place. And his most vulnerable place was alone. 
apart from anyone that could encourage it. It, it, it just occurred to me earlier this week that the great commission, commission, is actually a plural idea. I looked it up, the Latin of commission, it's two words, uh, com, C-O-M, which is together, in uh, mater, which is to release or let go. So the idea of the great commission was that Jesus was sending them out together. He was sending them out together. That's why when we planted this church, I didn't just move here with my wife and be like, here we are, let's plant a church. We got a team, we got brothers and sisters who we trusted, do it together. Uh, and people began to come to that work and, and, and feel like they wanted to be part of that work. We need each other. When Jesus said to be a city on a hill, he said, um, you be a city on a hill. He didn't say that singularly. He said, y'all be a city on the hill. He was talking to a group. He was saying, you all. The only way you can be a city is if there's more than one of you. When he said, be the salt of the earth, he wasn't speaking in singular language. He was speaking in plural language. You all be the salt of the earth. How do you be the salt of the earth? When you're together. Jesus said it was the, the, the way that you love each other is the way the world will know that you're my disciples. They will know that you are Christians by your love. Implied in the context is love for each other. So without community, we're not effective. If you want to burn out, if you want to see your mission become defeated, then just don't plug into this church. Don't plug into any church. Don't surround yourself with Christians. Don't stoke the flames. I mean, those of us that came to the retreat are encouraged this morning. Why? Because we spent two days fellowshipping with each other, pouring into each other, praying for each other, encouraging each other, dealing with stuff together. It was encouraging. That's the way God designed the body of Christ to work. Amen? Number three. If you want your ministry to be defeated, do this. Never adjust your method regardless of the results. Never adjust your method regardless of these. This is one of the, the, the dumbest things the church universally, I feel like, does, is they find a method that worked once, and then they just do it for hundreds of years. <laughs> and they go, we're just going to do what we did. Um, i got to give credit, actually, to Chuck Smith. Uh, if you remember the Jesus movement, you know, back in the 60s and 70s, and um, Chuck was just kind of doing church, um, and all of these hippies started coming, okay? All of these, like, hippies that hadn't bathed and didn't wear shoes and smelled kind of funny and were kind of these social outcasts in Southern California. Um, and Chuck, who was, a, you know, just kind of like, wow, the Lord's bringing these guys, um, and they just kept coming and kept coming and kept coming, and one of his deacons or elders or whatever came up to him and said, hey, we got to ask these guys to wear shoes, because they're completely ruining our carpets. <laughs> and I don't know if this is true or folklore, but the tradition is that Chuck was like, rip out the carpets. <laughs> you know, like, hello, you know, I mean, God is bringing, he's showing favor. I mean, these people are coming in. And so they ripped out the carpets. And of course, that was the spark that started the Jesus movement, uh, you know, which uh, many of us, um, well, not me, but uh, many of us who are older in this room, uh, were part of, yeah, Constance, okay. Um, praise the Lord, right? Okay, but it, what if Chuck had just said, you know what, you're right. We have to have carpet, you know. Uh, I mean, that sounds really stupid, but, but those are the kind of things that we, we do. So in our text, in verse 4, um, Paul is discouraged because he's coming up against this barrier. In verse 4, he said, he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath. That's what he's been doing. He's been trying to reach the Jews. He tried to persecute, uh, and tried to persecute, well, why am I saying persecute? Thank you. What does it persuade? <laughs> Let me just take a moment, regather myself. Okay, we're good. Uh, he tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. <laughs> While Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Okay, so what's he doing? He's ministering to the Jews here. And in verse 6, And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments, 
Okay, this was kind of the, the Jewish way uh, of, of saying, uh, no, I don't even want the dust on my garments that has touched you. Okay, he's just over it. Paul's over it. He's had it. He's had it. He's tired of the, the, the frustration that he's feeling uh, with the religious, self-righteous Jews. Um, and he said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm out. He says, I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justice. Um, my son, who's four, his name's Justice. He's Messiest Justice. This is Titius <laughs> Justice. Okay, totally different. Um, a worshiper of God, which means he, means he was a Gentile. Um, his house was next door to the synagogue. So Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So here's kind of what's happening. Paul is just coming up against a brick wall with these self-righteous Jews that just don't really want to hear the gospel. And he just kind of has it. He's like, enough of that. Um, God has shown favor with the Gentiles, so I'm going to the Gentiles. And as soon as he goes to the Gentiles, he immediately starts to see conversion. He immediately sees, starts to see people come to Christ. Um, and in, literally, the kind of the, the ironic part of it is uh, next door to the synagogue is where this guy, Titius Justice, lives. And because they start doing church, probably on Sunday, um, next door to the synagogue, the ruler of the synagogue ends up getting saved. Okay, so it's like you're digging with your shovel and you're hitting rock and you're hitting rock. You move it three feet to the right and it goes right into the soil. You know, I mean, this isn't a hard, fast rule, but just sometimes we need to look at where, the God is, where God is showing favor and we need to work there. You know, instead of trying to make something happen uh, that just doesn't seem to be happening. Okay, so in Chuck Smith's case, it's like God's bringing all these hippies. Sweet. That's who we're going to love. Okay? That's who we're going to love. Where is God showing favor? And I think for us, in terms of application, um, where is God already opening doors for you in your life? Okay? Instead of thinking about the people that aren't in your life, who already is? Instead of thinking about the things that aren't working out, think about the things that are. Think about where the Lord is showing favor. You know, Jesus really spent his time with the broken. Why did he do that? The last, the least, and the lost. He did that because they were open to the gospel. Now, that's not to say he didn't talk to the religious rulers or anything, but, but he spent the majority of his time with the broken because he knew that's where the shovel would go in, okay? Um, number four, fourth way if you, want your, uh, if you want your ministry to be defeated by discouragement, the fourth way to do that is listen to your thoughts and feelings instead of God's imperatives and promises. Listen to your thoughts and feelings instead of God's imperatives and and promises. Look at verse 9. So Paul is discouraged, right? He's discouraged, and so Jesus comes and actually speaks to Paul. If you have a red-letter Bible, you'll notice that verse 9 is red, okay? Uh, so Jesus, the resurrected, ascended Christ, is actually speaking in this moment to the apostle Paul to, to encourage him. It says, the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. Isn't that amazing? Jesus literally comes down in a vision and encourages Paul. And what's interesting about what Jesus says, I want to dissect it really quick here with you. What's interesting about what he says is that by deconstructing or opposite engineering what Jesus encourages him in, you can tell what Paul was discouraged about. By, by looking at what Jesus tries to encourage him about, you can tell what Paul was actually thinking potentially in his head, what he was actually wrestling with doing. And here's what I think it was. I think, first of all, that Paul was thinking, you know, maybe I should just shut up about the gospel. I mean, it's making everyone mad. 
It's frustrating everyone. Everyone's trying to stone me and kill me and throw me out of town. And, and I think Paul is thinking, maybe I should just shut up about the gospel. And I think that because what does Jesus say? Hey, Paul, don't shut up about the gospel. Keep preaching keep preaching. So I think it's safe to say that, yes, oh, the Apostle Paul, who's all our spiritual hero, who's still a human being, was actually feeling discouraged and actually feeling, maybe I should stop. Maybe I should quit. Maybe I should not open my mouth. And what's Jesus' response? Do not be afraid. Go on speaking. Do not be silent. Why is Jesus so adamant about that? Why is he so adamant that Paul continue to preach the gospel? Well, Paul would later say when he writes to the Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he says. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The reason the enemy wanted Paul to shut up about the gospel is because the gospel is the power of God to save. It is the power of God to save. And that's exactly why the enemy wants him to shut up. And Jesus is encouraging, don't do it. Don't ever shut your mouth about the gospel. I will protect you. The second thing I think that Paul is feeling is he's probably thinking this. Jesus isn't really with me in this. He isn't really with me in this. I'm on my own. Totally on my own. Does anybody ever feel like that? Um, I, I think he's feeling that way because what does Jesus say? He's, not only he says, don't shut your mouth. He says, hey, I'm with you. I'm with you. It's, isn't it amazing when, when someone is with you, how much more courage you have? I mean, when I go hiking and I'm by myself, I'm just kind of like, I'm real cautious. And I don't have cell reception, I don't break my leg, get stuck out here eaten by wolves, whatever. You know, I'm just, ah. Uh. But when I'm with some friends, I'm like, my courage just goes up. I mean, I remember being a little kid and being very fearful, but if my dad was with me, I would be fine with whatever was happening because I knew my dad was a big guy and I knew he was going to cover it. So Jesus is clearly encouraging Paul here. Hey, I'm with you. And I think Paul was probably starting to feel like maybe he wasn't. What did Jesus tell the disciples? His encouragement for them. Hey, I'm with you even unto the end of the age. What is the book of Acts? The book of Acts is the continuation of all that Jesus began to do and teach. He's still here. He's the point of the book of Acts. He is the central figure of the book of Acts. And he is living in his church. He's within Paul. That's why it's so important in the book of Revelation when we see the risen Christ. Where is he? He's in the midst of the lampstands. What are the lampstands? They're the churches. He's in his church. He's here. He's in us. He is with us. It's important. If you want to burn out, if you want to be discouraged, just start to think that he's not actually in you working through you. I also think Paul was feeling this, and, and this is what I want you to tune into. I think Paul was feeling like it was all on him to change lives. Uh, this is like the biggest lie that people in ministry believe. I am responsible for changing people. I have to make people change. And again, I'm not limiting ministry to pastoral. I'm saying if you have children, if you're working in anyone's life, trying to deal with people that are broken, you feel this compulsion. I have to fix them. This is on me to do that. That will burn you out. You will be defeated and discouraged if you feel that way. And I think Paul's feeling that way. I think he's feeling this burden. It's on me to see life change in Corinth. It's, in, it's on me to see people's life affected. Now, here's what happens when you think it's all on you. You begin to compensate. You begin to compensate when you realize that you can't actually change anyone's heart. 
Here's what pastors do, I can tell you, okay, because this is what I do. Here's what pastors do when they come up against this reality that they can't change people. They compensate with the three C's, charisma, complexity, and controversy. Okay, let me break those down. They, comp- they compensate with, with charisma, okay? If I can't change people's life, I'm just going to preach way louder. <laughs> I'm just going to post way more social media stuff. I'm just going to be way more excited. And maybe that will compensate for the lack of life change that I'm seeing. If I can't get people to do what I want, maybe I'll just be even more excited. There's an expression, weak point, pound the pulpit. <laughs> you know, like this point's not preaching. Maybe if I just talk a little louder, people will feel like maybe I'm actually saying something important. The second thing is complexity, charisma or complexity. Maybe we need to overcomplicate it. Maybe the reason things aren't changing or going the way we want is because we need more programs. Maybe we need more orb charts. Let's just, just, just complex the heck out of this thing, and maybe that'll fix it. Or controversy, which is you just try to make yourself look better than everyone else um, so that you feel better about yourself. Those are all compensation. Those are all, I can't get the results I want, so I'm going to manipulate the results. Um, but that's actually not the place the Lord wants us to be in. What is the response that Jesus has to this thinking Paul's having? He says, for I have many in this city who are my people. This just wrecked me this week. It just wrecked me. As I'm dealing, as a leader, I'm dealing with my own um, inadequacies, and I'm dealing with the reality that I can't really change and affect culture as quickly as I would like. Jesus comes down to Paul, who's probably feeling similar, and he says, hey, I have my people in this city. They're my people, Paul. They're my people. I will save them. I will do it. Who do you think you are? (laughs) Parent? Friend? The the, the people that you think you can change? Do Do you think you have the power to really change them? They're not your people. Your kids, they're not your kids. They're his kids. He's the one that can change him. He's the one that has the power. And Jesus clearly makes it his sovereignty, the focus for Paul. I will save them. Listen to what he would say later in Romans 8, 29. He said, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. You know, God saves he saves. He's the one that calls us. He's the one that delivers us. He's the one that works in us. He's going to get us all the way to the end. Everybody just take a deep breath. <sighs> okay, I know that feels silly, but it feels really good, actually. God's got this. He's got this. I'm just talking to myself right now. He's got this. There are souls in Grant's past. They're his souls. There are people that are his in this city that have not yet realized it. He's going to save them. And our prayer needs to be, Lord, can you please use us to do that? Can we be part of that? Can we be part of that? Listen to what Paul says to the Corinthians in his, his letter to him, 1 Corinthians 2.1. When I came to you, brothers, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith, listen to this, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. There's a saying in churches, whatever you win them with, you keep them with. People are coming to your church because you have great, awesome music and coffee and chairs and whatever. Like, that's why they're there. 
what Paul is saying is he's saying, hey, I don't want you to come because you, you thought I was eloquent. I don't want you to come because I'm the Apostle Paul. I don't want you to come, because, uh, come to Christ because you think I'm something special. I want you to come because of Jesus, because he is the value. He is the point. He is why we're here. So it's in his weakness that God actually uses him to bring the broken. And number five, we'll close with this. The fifth way to see your ministry defeated by discouragement is to expect discipleship and life change to be quick and easy. That'll burn you out. Just expect it to be quick and easy. We live in a quick and easy society. I hate waiting for things. Some of you are thinking, I wish this sermon would be over quicker. Okay. You know, like it's, I, we just want things to be fast. We want things to be quick. Even the drive-through is painful now, isn't it? Is anyone else feeling that? I mean, that used to be quick, and now I'm thinking, it might be quicker if I go in, you know? Like, I don't know. I went to Chick-fil-A, and the, the drive-through looked like a, it would be an hour-long wait. I just went and got my food, you know? We expect things to be quick. Life change isn't quick. It's not quick. It takes a really long time. The slow things. Look at verse 11. What, is Paul, what does Paul do in Corinth? He stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Now you might think, well, no, that's not very long. But he's on a missions trip. <laughs> he's on a missions trip. And he stops for a year and a half. Why? Because he wants to lay a good foundation in these guys. He wants them to really understand the gospel. He wants them to understand not just that Jesus rose from the grave, but what implications that has on every part of your life. He wants to unpack how the Old Testament truly is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. That, that the brokenness of sin really is fixed and redeemed at the cross. He spends the time one thing that I feel like most of us in the West just are not willing to spend, but it is the single most thing that we need. You know, I could give you uh, a list. I'm like getting spam calls. Well, this is annoying. Um, I could give you a list of all of the, all of the, the, the um, resources and all the things that we have to offer people that are struggling in our culture right now, and there's a lot. And, and, and so, so what, what, what is needed right now from the church is not necessarily a bagged sandwich in the park. I'm not saying there's anything inherently wrong with that. Maybe there is, actually. But um, stop calling me. That's the third time. Okay. Technology. So, again, calling me again. Airplane mode. Squirrel. There is a list of resources. I'm sorry. There was like four calls in a row. That's ridiculous. Um, <laughs> there is a list of resources for, for every material need. But you know what the church really needs to be doing right now? You know what our church really needs to be doing? Spending time with broken people. Okay? Spending time with broken people. We need to actually spend years of our lives walking people through life change. People that never had parents. People that never were taught how to function in society. People that never really understood exactly what it looks like just, just to, to function as a human being. They need Christians to come in and walk with them, and it takes time to unpack the gospel to them. That's not quick work. It's not, hey, here's a sandwich. No, I feel good about myself. I'm going to go snowboard. It's a different mentality. Okay? It's, it's, I'm actually invested in your life, and this is the way that Paul thinks about it. You know, it, it, it cracks me up. Every time I ever uh, lose weight or anyone else ever loses weight, everyone always asks the same question. What did you do? Like, oh, like there's some kind of secret that you've been holding out on, you know? Like, uh, I stopped eating so much food and I started running more. 
And everyone goes, oh, no, that can't be it. You know, like, I, I don't like that answer, you know. Like, how do we see life change in people? Yeah, it, it, it takes time. It takes time. How do we, how do we you know, grow up with, with kids that we have a good relationship with and they know that we love them and they learn the gospel and they learn about Jesus? And, and, and it takes time. There's no magic book you're going to read. There's no ma- it's, just, it's just time and lots of love. That's ministry. Now, I don't like that in my Western brain. I want the quick thing. But the reality is, is it takes time. So if you want your ministry to be defeated by discouragement, expect discipleship not only to be quick, but to be easy. Expect it to be easy. Look at verse 12. When Galio, or Galio, or whatever, was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth... Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal, and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Okay, here's my point in all of that. Um, God honored his promise to protect Paul in this moment, but it still got really messy. They still pulled the leader of the synagogue out and beat him. I mean, it got really messy. And if you don't believe it got messy, go read the book of Corinthians, and you'll see just how messy Corinth got. You don't think ministry is messy? It is. Corinth was just about one of the messiest churches you can imagine. And Paul pastored it. He dealt with it. He stuck with them. He stayed with them. He continued to love them. Ministry is messy. If you want to burn out, just live in the idea, the romanticized idea that loving people is going to be easy and clean. It's not going to, you're not going to get any blood on your shirt. You're not, going to get, you're not going to get dirty. There's not going to be foul smells. It's not going to be awkward. It's not going to cost you anything. It's not going to affect your plans. It might not mess up your weekend. Just keep thinking like that. And eventually you'll go, forget this. I will stay in the comfort place. Ministry is not the comfort place. It's not the comfort place. So here's my conclusion. Galatians 6, 9, Paul says this. He says, let us not grow weary of doing good. And that's my encouragement to you. Let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as if we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. I heard this awesome example I'll close with this, by Rick Boya the other day. He was talking about burnout. He was talking to a room full of pastors, Grant's Pass, and he was talking about how he struggled with burnout multiple times in the ministry for 45 years. And he said, you have to think about the church like an orchard, not like topiary. Does anybody know what topiary is? (laughs) Nobody knows what topiary is. Constance does. Topiary (laughs) is when you take a bush and you, get, and you shape it into something that looks really cool, okay? That's how we tend to think about ministry. Oh, I have this little kid. They're perfect. They'll never do anything wrong. I'm going to shape them into this thing, this person that I want them. That's not ministry. Ministry is the messy, sticky, patient field of an orchard where you're 
pruning and you're watering and you're just spending all of this time and in hopes that there'll be some fruit at some point. And then you come and you collect the fruit and it's sticky and it's messy and it's, it's just a lot of work. And then you wait and then you harvest. And there's these long periods, these long seasons of time where you don't see any fruit, but you know that it's coming. Okay? It's not about taking people and shaping them into an image. It's about taking the fruit and waiting for it and nurturing an environment where it can come and cultivating an environment where the fruit can come. That's our job. Uh, And this is what Jesus was getting at in John 15 when he says, I am the vine. Okay, this might be simple, but who's the vine? Are you the vine? Am I the vine? Like, we're not the vine. Jesus makes this so clear. I am the vine. My father is the vine dresser. Who's the vine dresser? I'm not the vine dresser. He's the vine dresser. He's the vine. He's covering it. He's doing it. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Here's the command. Abide in me, and I will abide in you. Hold on to the branch. Hold on to the branch. Help others hold on to the branch. That's what Christian ministry is. You can't produce fruit in people. You can't change people. You can't shape people like topiary. Okay? You just hold on to your life source and you connect other people to the life source, which is the life of Jesus Christ. The renewing, redemptive, resurrected, living, ascended life of Jesus Christ that lives within you. And the power of that life is accessed through the gospel, which is the news of what Jesus has done, is doing, and will do to renew, renovate, redeem, and restore this broken world. Connecting people to him. He is the source. I think the thing that enemy love for us to believe is that we can't change people, so we might as well just hide out in here and play church. Hang out with people that are just like us. What the enemy doesn't want you to realize is that if you see that your job is not to change people, your job is to get people to the gospel and let the gospel change them, then we're going to start to see some real change happen. He wants us to think it's on us. It's right where he wants us. So Paul didn't burn out. He kept going. He planted a church in Corinth. But I've given you the five ways too <laughs> to do it. So if you want to destroy your ministry, now you have five ways. Would you guys pray with me? Father, we just thank you so much that we are not the star of the show. We're not the hero. We can't change people's hearts. I can't even change my own heart. We can't make people do what we want. We don't even know exactly what we should want people to do. But I'm thankful, Jesus, that you are the director You're the director of your kingdom, which is being manifested on this earth even now. And we just want to be part of your story. We want to be part of your redeeming hand. Lord, we love you this morning. We give you our discouragement. We give you our weakness. And we say, Lord, would you multiply this like loaves and fishes? Would you take the very little that we have to offer and would you make it something supernatural? God, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you, Jesus, that you didn't leave us here in this broken world alone, that you came into it, that you put on human flesh, that you bore sin on the cross, that you became sin so that we could become righteousness, that you've given us a new life and a new spirit. God, we pray for our city. We pray for all the fatherless kids, all the motherless kids, all the, the, the orphan kids, Lord, in this southern Oregon, Lord. We pray that, Lord, you would use us, send us, to them, 
May we be an extension of your love for them. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So for the last 20 minutes, we've invited a friend. Hi, Winona. Would you come on up? Everybody clap for Winona. Why don't you come sit on the couch? Also, my wife. My wife, come up. Everybody clap for my wife for sure. Okay, you can sit there. There's a microphone. There's a little switch on the bottom. You can just turn on. And I'm going to introduce these guys. So my wife and I, for the last, it's been two years, should be a little light bulb once it's on. Got it? I think we're good. Check, check. Hello. You're there. You're in. Oh, you're there. Okay. So for the last two years, has it been two years? I don't know. Has it been four years? Wow. Okay. For the last four years. So four years ago, my, my wife and I were like, we want to do something outside of the church. Uh, we want to be involved in something that, that, that is beyond just the reach of the church. And we were kind of looking about looking at different options and praying through different things. And, um, and, and Randy's like, what about Casa? And I was like, well, what is that? Is that a house? <laughs> is that a house in Spanish? I don't know. Um, and, so, and so we looked into it, and, and, we, and we realized, man, that's, that's what we want to do. And we found out that we could do it together as a couple. And so we signed up, and we went to the training class, and we met Winona. And Winona is amazing. She runs Casa in Medford. And what's your official title? Deputy director. Deputy director. Okay. Um, so I would have introduced you as the executive, so you should just let me know. But anyways, uh, so and Winona spent like six weeks with us teaching us how to be CASAs, and so I really want you guys all to be CASAs. I'm just going to show my cards, okay? This is what I want. I want everyone in our church to be a CASA. So for that reason, we've invited Winona to have a conversation um, about what it means to be a CASA, what CASA is, um, and we're going to try to talk all them into doing it, um, which should be great. So why don't we start with this. Um, what is CASA and what is a CASA? And why do you start with that? So uh, CASA is, means court-appointed special advocate, and CASAs are volunteers in Jackson County and Josephine County, both programs under my boss, are, we're sister programs, and CASAs are the voice for children in court. And um, amazingly, I came in early, thankfully, to hear your amazing sermon, because everything Sam was saying is basically what a CASA is. A CASA doesn't give up hope. A CASA walks alongside these children and families as they're healing, usually from substance abuse in our, in our um, case here in Jackson and Josephine. And a CASA doesn't control or try and change, but a CASA is that consistent, loving, non-judgmental presence in the life of a child or children as they're going through this very traumatic time in their life when they have a case with Department of, of Child Welfare and have been probably taken from their parents' physical custody and placed in foster care. Absolutely. Okay. So... Basically, what's amazing about that is if you're looking at, um, how do I say this? If you're looking at the brokenness of a society, okay, where does that start? <laughs> it starts with kids that grew up without family, without a, without a stable system. And so, you know, if you're wanting to go right to the source of, of the brokenness in many ways in our culture, you, you know, we go to the fatherless, right, Eric? We go to the, the fields of the fatherless, as Eric calls it, um, where the, the, the kids that are not being raised, okay? Um, so, so CASAs, as Winona said, I mean, Randy and I, we get to literally advocate and champion for these kids that are in care. Now, kids are in care for about two years, Right? And like care, I mean, there's a case open. So um, maybe just walk us through the life of kind of a case and how a CASA interacts, you know, throughout that, that life of a case. Yeah, so it starts with a call to the child abuse reporting hotline in Portland. And if someone has a suspicion of child abuse or neglect is occurring, they take the call, they assess it, they determine if they're going to send someone out to investigate. They investigate it, 
and they determine they need the court to help to intervene in the lives of these children. So they come into an initial hearing, at which point the parents are sort of facing their allegations. The judge is reading, this is what you're alleged to have done to your children, and then the case continues from there. So at that point, at that first hearing, we're trying to find a CASA for those kids. And every, almost every day in Jackson and Josephine counties, kids are coming into the jurisdiction of the court, at the juvenile courthouse. And so we try and find a CASA. And then the case continues for an average of two years. This is the lifetime of a case in our counties. So it goes through certain, certain sort of foundational hearings. The next first hearing is a trial, and it sounds basically what it is. So the parents are facing their allegations. The state's attorney, the AAG, is trying to prove those allegations to continue to, to keep those kids in jurisdiction of the court so the judge can monitor that case. We're hoping to appoint a CASA, and the CASA would be at that trial. The CASA would write a report. The CASA would speak to the judge and talk about the children, talk about the parents' progress, talk about what's happening. And then about 10 to 12 months later, there's a pivotal hearing in the lifetime of a case, and that is the time at which the judge can determine if those kids are going to return to their parents or if they're gonna go into adoption or guardianship and not be placed back with those parents. That's a huge hearing for the CASA because during that 10 to 12 month period, the CASA's been following up with the kids, maybe going to school, maybe going to medical appointments, reading a ton of, of documents about what's happening on this case, talking to the parents, talking to foster parents, potentially talking with relatives, and really getting a 360 degree view of what's happening in that child's life and also being that consistent person in that child's life because everybody else in that case can change caseworkers, attorneys, foster parents, that kid can be moving from placement to placement to placement to placement, not knowing where they're gonna live. And that CASA shows up consistently to be that loving, kind, amazing presence that that child knows values them and will speak up for them at every turn, whether it's in a court hearing or whether it's in the school system or the medical system. And then about a year later, hopefully, if those kids have been returned to their parents and everything is going well, that case can close and those kids have been reunified. At that additional year mark, that might be the time when adoption or guardianship is finalizing for those kids. And even if they don't go back to their parents, we hope that the CASA has been able to maintain a connection between the parents and that child in a safe and healthy way. So they always know that their parents are there for them, but maybe not able to take care of them on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, and it's the craziest thing when you first get to be part of a case and you actually get to sit <laughs> with the lawyers and the DHS worker. You're like, they're letting me be up here. This is kind of weird. And then uh, literally in the, in the court, they, the judge at one point will say, Caso, do you have any thoughts? And you literally get to stand up and you've written a report too and, and, and expressed your thoughts, but you get to stand up and say, here's what I think needs to happen or here's what we need for this child or here's some of the services we need to recommend or here's what I think. And the judge is very, he respects this role of the CASA. The CASA is very much respected in that courtroom. So um, the judge wants to hear what you think. He wants to hear your input. The caseworkers will have anywhere from 15 to 20 or more, 30, 30 cases, 40. Uh, 30, 40, 50. Uh, cases open at a time. So for them, it's a stack of papers. And in there somewhere is the kid that you're loving on. You probably have one, maybe two, maybe three cases. Uh, in our case, we just have one because uh, we have our own kids and this life's crazy. So, but we know that case and we have the answers for that case and we can say, hey, you know, I visited our kid at school last week and they're doing really well and the judge gets to hear the personal details of the, the literal, the, the child instead of just kind of the, the paperwork part of it. 
Randy, I, I had Randy come up too because um, I want to hear not only the perspective of Winona, who's really leading the whole thing, but also, Randy, tell me kind of the perspective that, that it is from you and how it's been meaningful for you. Um, maybe sort of what the daily, weeklyness looks like, because I think a lot of you guys might be going, so we just sit in court? Is that what we do? Is there more to it than that? Is there a relational element? What does it look like? How many hours do we spend doing it? Um, things like that. Well, I think that there's a lot of CASAs, primarily retired CASAs, who spend a lot more time than us. You just got to hold it a little closer. Sorry. And <laughs> so we generally spend about five to ten hours a month. Um, that looks like visiting the child once a month at least. Um, keeping in touch with foster parents, the biological parents. I get to sit across from, in our current case, a biological parent every few months and catch up with her. And I've developed a relationship with um, some of the biological parents, calling the doctor, the psychologist, the um, writing the reports. Uh, what am I missing? No, it's good. All Visiting the things. The school, yeah, um, because. Yeah. We're not able, like for every visit we make, we have to get a babysitter for our kids. So we're generally visiting them once a month, but we found other ways to connect with them, like sending them cards or dropping by packets or boxes at holidays, mm -hmm. um, just letting them know that we're there for them and uh, loving on them or, yep. go, or taking turns. One of us will go visit them at lunch. The coolest thing is when the parents, the parents of the kids who were CASAs for, go, oh, you guys are the Casas? I had a Casa when I was a kid, and they were amazing, and we, I loved them. I mean, everybody loves Casas because you really get to be, um, not to say that you don't ever have to be the, the bad guy, but, but really you get to be that person in their life that brings them Christmas presents, and, and, and whenever we hang with the kids, I mean, we'll bake cookies, or we'll bring a craft, and we just get to play with them, and um, we get to meet so many different people in the case, you know, as well. It's just a really an, an amazing thing, and if, and if Randy and I can do it with having three little kids and um, planting a church, uh, I think everyone could really be doing it if, if that's something that you're feeling called to. Um, I mean, there's, there's people that do it that are just incredible. Like, they'll go volunteer at the kids' school so they see them, like, every day. Or, um, like, we've gone to sporting events and seen some of our CASA kids, like, play baseball or whatever, um, just do different things in order to be there and be a part of their life. I mean, this is such a turbulent season in this kid's life where um, they may not even realize it, depending on how old they are, but they're living with some strangers that they didn't know in foster home. Um, you know, they're, they're, their parents are probably going through some kind of maybe addiction recovery. Um, it's just a really turbulent time. And so to be that, like Winona said, even that, to be that stabilizing point in that kid's life is awesome. Tell, tell us kind of a story maybe of how a cost is impacted. You got all these good stories. Um, what's, what's the best one that you can think of here? Uh, I love <laughs> stories. So, um, so this one case came into care a few years ago and there were two little girls, they were five and six, and they had been removed from their parents physically and placed into foster care with people they didn't know. And gosh, I mean, that's the scariest thing ever for a kid. They had to, they couldn't even take any of their possessions from their home because parents were selling heroin out of the home and so it could have been contaminated with paraphernalia. And so they, they had to leave their home with nothing. So um, we got a cost on that case immediately. It was actually a married couple, not Sam and Randy, but um, another awesome married couple we have that are co-costing. And they went out immediately to the home the first weekend the kids were there and they were able to take some clothing and some stuffed animals, find out what these little kiddos like. So we're able to take a little soccer ball for the, the oldest girl because she loves soccer. 
And, um, and the parents did not engage in services for about the first 10 months on the case. So classes were going to school and checking in with the kids, and the kids' behavior was really deteriorating. And they were little, five and six, so they were, to have behavioral issues at school was pretty dramatic for them. And they were having behavioral issues in the foster home as well, and they were not able to see their parents. So the classes were able to get visits arranged with the parents at the visitation center that were supervised and safe. And so the kids were able to see their parents, even though their parents were still using drugs that was so important to these kids to know that their parents were okay and to know that their parents loved them and so that was an instrumental thing the CASA was able to push through very quickly was visits with the kids and what happened at that point was pretty much magical the parents then as they were seeing their kids were able to prioritize their kids needs and get into treatment and then become engaged in treatment and actually recover and go through the treatment program that was ordered. And a year later, the parents came to court and the judge was able to, to say, okay, we're gonna return your kids pretty quickly because you're doing so well and you're almost done with your treatment. So parents finished treatment, the kiddos were returned to their parents' physical custody, and at the court hearing, that hearing I was talking about, the little five-year-old looked at her casa and said, I got my mommy and daddy back. And that was so cool. pretty amazing because mm -hmm. we really we really want kids back with their parents if that can be done in a safe, healthy way. And I gotta say in the Rogue Valley, we have an 85% reunification rate of kids going back with their parents. And so that is healing the fabric of our community, one casa and one family at a time. And mm -hmm. it's pretty phenomenal when you think about the ability to walk alongside this family that's in pain and has been judged by so many people. And the causes are not saying, you're a bad drug addict, you're a bad person. They're saying, how can we help you? We know it's so important that you have that relationship with your kids. What can we do to help? And that was a, a wonderful demonstration of how the parents really used the causes as cheerleaders and as champions for them so that they could continue healing and get their kids back and get their family back healthy and safe. Yeah. You really, I mean, you're such a small part of such a larger thing. You know, there's so many people involved in the life of a case, but to be a part of it, you know, it's just, it's just meaningful. Did you? I was just going to say, yeah, I feel like that's one of the things that really surprised me is it's easy when you're not involved with the cases to demonize these parents and you can read the report and, and look at what they did or what they're charged with and um, kind of dehumanize them. But once you get to talk with them and once you start flipping through the discovery and realizing they had cases of their own 10 years ago where they were abused and they were neglected, uh, I've just had such a compassion for these parents who really just don't have the community and the tools that I've been given. And I think it's no accident that the Lord gave us CASA in the same season that I have really struggled with depression and anxiety. When uh, we started being CASAs when I was pregnant with Scout, which is when I went through a really hard season. And so it was humbling to see like some of these parents are just struggling with mental health issues that I am. But instead of having support and community and um, everything I have to get through it, they don't have family. They have people surrounded, surrounding them with um, substances that they depend on. And um, yeah, so I think that's really good to actually yeah. see that these are humans that just, they yeah. just need loved. And yeah, it's, I think it's easy to sort of live in your class, live in your world, shop at your store, and, and look at certain streets and certain neighborhoods and certain people and think, well, they're just this or they're just that. Um, or even if you have a heart for them, like, I don't know how I would ever build a relationship. 
because our worlds are so different. Costa really helps you see actually where they're coming from and why they've had such a hard time. And, and, and it doesn't, it doesn't you know, get rid of some of the guilt of some of this stuff, but it does allow you to have grace for them. And it connects you with people that you would never get to know um, and build relationship with people that you never get to know, which is really cool. What so, is the number currently for kids in our, in, I guess there's two counties we're talking about, but. Yeah, so um, Jackson and Josephine counties combined, there are 1,400 children in the child welfare system as of last year. And right now in Josephine County, Josephine County CASAs, there are about 40 CASAs in Josephine County, and they're serving about 100 children right now, and there are another 180 kids on the wait list. In Jackson County, I have about 224 CASAs serving about 700 children, and there are another 200 on my wait list in Jackson County. So collectively, we have about 300, almost 400 kids waiting for CASAs today, and um, could really just, we really just need people that are kind, compassionate, caring individuals who don't want to control things and don't think they can, you know, make the outcome happen and just want to walk alongside people that are struggling and trying to get their life on the right path. And um, when Sam and Randy came in four years ago and I interviewed them, I was so like, it was crazy because I was like, this is a young couple. They have children. Randy's pregnant. Like, wow. What? Not they're now. This built, was four yeah, years this ago. This was four years okay. ago. Yeah. Just, uh, yeah. Shocking. And, um, and they're, you know, they, they're doing their, they, he's, Sam was pastoring at that time as well, and I'm like, gosh, if these if these two can do it, like anybody can do it. It just takes someone who is willing because they're so busy. And Thanks for just, clarifying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, <laughs> if these guys no, can do they, it, they pastor everything just fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I hold them as a model casa couple because they're busy, and um, and they said I want to carve out a little bit more time in my life to do something that's it's a little bit different for our community and to heal to heal our community. And I was so so stoked oh, that they gave in. <laughs> oh, we're stoked. So. Um, one last question, I think. Yeah, uh, for for one another first. Um, how do how do these guys? Let's say they're interested in, in doing that. So, what's the steps to take to become a Casa? Yeah, um, if you live in Josephine County, which most of you probably do, then um, contact Casa of Josephine County and um, just Google it. It's right, it's right over on like where Ch uh, Child Advocacy Center is on Fourth Street, Fourth and D. I think that's our office. And so Google CASA of Josephine County. I've got some flyers back there that talk about CASA in general and some different details. It says CASA of Jackson, Jackson County because I created them, but it holds true for both of our counties because we are sister programs. And, um, and then if you live in Jackson County, my, um, you can just come to an orientation at noon on any Thursday. So that's Jackson County. Josephine County, Google and contact CASA of Josephine yep. County. So there's a training class that you go through. Yep, so it's not like you're just sitting in court the first no. day and you don't know what you're doing. No, well, um, you might feel like that, but we do train no. you. Um, so yeah, there's a 30-hour there's a classroom training you have to go through, and that involves some court observations. And then there's, a, so orientation to, for either of us, then there's an interview that you'd have with either myself in Jackson County or my counterpart here in Joe County, Sanspect. And then you have the training and you do background checks and then you're sworn in by the judge because it is a sworn obligatory role through the legislature. You have a statute you have to swear to uphold and then you get your first case and then you're off and running with multiple levels of support from the office. Yeah. So I can speak to my office. We have three, four different levels of support. Josephine County, smaller office, but they have 
the um, program support coordinator, they have their program manager, they have their executive director, and so all of those individuals will be supporting you in deploying your CASA role 100%. So no worry about that. We're there to answer all your questions, and as many times as you ask the same question, we're still gonna answer it, because this is our full-time job and not your full-time job, so yeah. Cool, any questions? You, sir, in the back. Minimum age. 21. Cool. I have a <laughs> I have a Casa. I have a Casa who's 92, and she's on. She's coming back. She's on hiatus because her husband just passed away. But she's gonna come back before her 93rd birthday. So, yep. Voila would crush it. She would just be awesome. Great question. So um, Sam and I had that conversation when he came into the interview, and I said, CASA is secular. We, we're nonprofit. We would lose our nonprofit status if we align with a particular religious belief. Plus, we have families of so many diverse religious spiritual beliefs, so it's important that you, you recognize and respect that. And Sam said, I, I want to minister to the community in a secular way. And I thought that was brilliant because even though, and I said, gosh, this guy's a pastor, and he's coming in, and he's going to be doing CASA in a secular way. And that's amazing that he can do that because it's still ministering. You can still bring your values and beliefs and your love and your compassion and non-judgment, but you have to keep it separate from the interaction that you're having with the CASA families, if that makes sense. And when they yeah. Conversation, can you share? You, 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 well, so you want to just be like, yeah, yeah. If they say so, do you know, do you, do you believe in God? And can I get a Bible perhaps, which is a, very, a common question that we, we get. Say, yeah, I do believe in God. And, and I'm happy to see if I can get you a Bible through the CASA office through funds. But you can't, you can't propose it. You can't say, hey, have you thought about Jesus Christ? Have you thought about, you know, getting a Bible and studying? So you want to be very sure that it's it's prompted by them, and then you have to also just be very sure how how you're how you're then going about that going forward. Yeah, because we were wrestling with that a little bit, you know, because um, it can feel kind of funny, you know, to be like, oh, so I can't talk about Jesus necessarily. I think this idea of sac like sacred versus secular, um, taking care of orphans is spiritual. <laughs> Okay, so even if you're in, in that particular, while well, that case is open, let's say, you're not allowed to, to maybe bring up the gospel, um, caring for the lost, the least, the last, the people that God, that, that is spiritual work. And um, so I think it, it, it is not secular, <laughs> it, even though I know what we mean by that word, you know. So, and, and you're building relationships that hopefully will carry past the case, too. And, and that's, that's kind of an awesome thing as well, so. Yeah, and one thing from my perspective is, for those of us who believe in the power of prayer, like I've been able to pray most days for these families, and these are people who it's like, obviously God sees them, but maybe no one else has ever prayed for them, you know? So yeah. I think you can't underestimate just the power of loving them and being present. And like Sam said, we do have relationships that once the case closes, you're free to those boundaries and those rules, which are really helpful and needed during the case, but they can come down yeah. And you can't invite them over or totally. yeah. continue that relationship. Yep. Cool. Can we pray for uh, Casa and for you and the work you're doing? And 
for San. And um, Lord, uh, we just thank you so much that um, you do care about these kids and you see all the hurt and all the pain and um, all the abandonment and all the brokenness, not only just in the kids, but even in the parents. Um, Lord, we're all made in your image and uh, we all designed to glorify you, God. And we just pray, Father, that um, you would bless Casa, Lord, that you would use it as an instrument in your hand to establish your justice in this world, God, and to, to heal, um, to bring um, grace and truth, Lord, into these broken places, Father. And we just pray for you to be putting this on anyone's heart to be part of this work or that you would just draw them to that. Um, we pray for Winona and all the work that she's putting in, Lord, um, in Jackson County and the office there and all the costs and the overseers and everything there, Lord. Um, we pray for the office here in Josephine County, Lord, and we just pray, God, that you would bless that place uh, and use it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Winona. I appreciate it. Uh,